Welcome to the first podcast in a new collaboration between Newcastle University and Opera North, staging the voice, voicing the stage. Bringing together staff, creatives and performers from Opera North with academics and researchers from throughout the university, this series will explore voice and performance, from issues relating to neuroscience and biology connected with the physical voice, to questions of representation, of silenced voices, and marginalised people. I'm Jo Robinson, Professor of Theatre and Performance and Head of the School of English Literature, Language and Linguistics at Newcastle University. In this first podcast, we'll be looking at captions, surtitles and subtitles, the point at which text and the performed voice meet and a crucial aid to understanding what's happening on stage, not only for audiences with specialist access needs. So for today's conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by three guests from Opera North. I'm Alice Gilmore and I'm the Access Manager. So I arrange for the accessible services that we have on all our external performances. So we have audio description, signers, captioning and relaxed and dementia friendly performances. So I organise and make sure those all happen. And in my freelance life, I'm also an audio describer and sort of very passionate about making the arts accessible in general. So that's me. I'm Christine Chevenot. Director of Planning is my title. I have overall responsibility for bringing together the the artistic programme for the main stage and obviously a, a bit of an overview about what happens elsewhere as well. I have been here for a ridiculously long time, nearly 40 years. So I have seen the growth of surtitles. I mean, they were unheard of when I first started here. And so I've been part of that ongoing debate as to how we should, if we should, and what they could be over a very long period of time. So, yeah, that's me. Hello, I'm Stuart Leakes and I'm editor at Opera North. And one of the things that I do is to facilitate the provision of our English titles. Okay, so that probably is a great place to start, Stuart, in terms of can we begin by you explaining to us how Opera North uses surtitles and what approach you take to working with them, with your productions? Yes, I mean, it's probably worth just starting with what well, I'll try to make a very sort of brief history lesson, which touches on what Christine was saying. So Opera North naturally provide titles for anything at all until 2002, which is relatively late in the day when we cautiously introduced them with the production of Tosca, oddly enough, uh, given we're about to do that opera again. Yeah, sort of back in 2002. And the company was so cautious about providing them at that time that some of the performances were titled and some weren't to give the audience a choice back then. So at first, things were only titled if they were sung in a foreign language. Um, After a few years, some pieces that were originally written in another language but sung in English. And I think the first of these was possibly Rizalka by Vorjak, were also titled even, even though they were sung in English. And as time got has gone by, we've increasingly titled pieces, whether they're in another language or whether they're in English. 
the way that they are provided at Opera North is that we employ a very experienced, extremely skilled freelance title supervisor, Lydia French, who does the work in terms of preparing scripts, queuing scores, and is usually with us for production weeks to you know, make changes in the light of what we learn as the production gets onto the stage. And then we have a small, more locally based team of surtitle operators who will operate subsequent performances in Leeds and on tour. I sometimes wonder if at least some of the audience actually thinks that this happens somehow by magic or automatically, that we've got some sophisticated voice recognition software uh, kind of providing it, but actually it very much still has and requires, I think, the human touch to deliver them well. So I suppose for me that kind of raises a question about who are they for? The fact that you kind of originally began with a very gentle introduction and some people might not want them and some people might want them. So kind of when you are thinking about your audience for surtitles as you've just described who are they for i think it is for the general audience i think that it's many years now i think that the audience was sort of survey you know did a survey in terms of whether or not they wanted them and i think the vast majority of the audience did appreciate them uh so it's for the audience at large i think in terms of the titling and how does that connect up with your work Alice in terms of access because I suppose one thing we might say is around kind of the terminology that we're using so you're talking about surtitles here which is very much a term that I associate with opera I think and then we're also talking about captions which are probably more where we're sitting in terms of access so Alice is that a good place to bring you in? Yeah sure so running alongside the surtitling we were also captioning performances which is where you obviously display every line and you employ an external provider, what we did, to run scrolling captions on screens. And those were for always any opera or musical that was being sung in English. And that's an accessible service for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. So there'll be one caption performance in a run. And we used to employ stage text to do that. And then I think it was around 2018, we'd already been researching whether we could in fact do captioning ourselves using our own technology, which is our big LED TV screens, and then our own font, our own look. And we worked, I worked with Lydia, and we also got some help from a captioner looking at how we could caption the magic flute. So Lydia prepared captions. So we were literally putting the words on the screen that the singers were actually singing. And, the, you know, if something was repeated, then it was displayed again. If there was a sound effect off stage, it was written on the screen, perhaps in italics. And there are certain captioning rules that we kind of followed. And we also did some research. So we invited various different people to see that performance and we got lots of feedback. And there was some very, very positive feedback from people that they liked the fact that these didn't scroll, that it wasn't this orange sort of dot matrix thing. And that was from some people who'd never been to an opera. So ever since then, we've also occasionally done captioned performances, but it very much depends on how many performances are in English. I think last year, very few productions we did were in English, if, if any. So the surtitles were there in place. So we left those as is. But now, yeah, we have the in-house capability of captioning. We've not run up against a show yet where the text is so dense that it perhaps then becomes difficult because there is so much to display. But yeah, that's an ongoing thing. We need to think about when we'll next caption something based on the next thing that's in English. So 
I suppose I'm trying to connect up the conversation about uh, surtitling and the conversation about captioning, which both kind of come from different places. And the sort of idea for me that you would only think about captioning for an English language performance is giving me all sorts of thoughts about the relationship between the text, the performance, the music, kind of thinking about well, not so much what takes priority, but the relationship between those different things and, and why you wouldn't think about giving a bit more detail for the foreign language performances where they're being kind of surtitled in English. Perhaps I'll say a little bit about the why I'm kind of on the podcast, I suppose, in the first place, which is that I'm not in any way a scholar of opera, but I'm a researcher into theatre and performance and One of the projects that I've been working on in recent years is with a company called Red Earth Theatre Company who make theatre for children and young people and their families and work in particular with deaf and hard of hearing children and young people. And they've always taken what they call a kind of total communication approach to their theatre. So they've tried to integrate gesture, props, movement, lighting, but also within that British Sign Language or sign-supported English. So they've always had, rather than having an interpreter on the side of the stage who's been using sign language on kind of one-off performances, as is often the case in theatre and performance, they've always tried to integrate sign language within the stage picture itself, within the action of the show. So the actors will tend to be multi-skilled and be able to interpret for each other as the as the production continues. So an audience member looking at those productions is able to just focus on the action itself and not have to kind of look to the side of the stage for a BSL interpreter. So one of the questions that kind of Red Earth had really was, can we do the same thing for surtitles or captions, whatever the term is that we use, which for them too are often on the side of the stage. They try to avoid the kind of scrolling dot matrix look. So they tend to use sort of PowerPoint slide projections, but they're very aware of what they call the Wimbledon effect, where you're kind of looking at the actors and then you're looking to the side of the stage to look at the words and then you're back to the actors and then back again which is obviously, you know, for theatre, as with opera, which is kind of an immersive art form where you're hoping that the audience member gets drawn into the performance and is able to fully focus on the action is a sort of disruptive and a distracting effect. So along with people who are much cleverer than me in computer science and, and translation, we have done some work over the last few years around embedding captioning, not at the side of the stage, but actually into the action itself which has raised all sorts of questions, not just about how you practically do that, but, um, and this is maybe where I kind of throw the conversation open once more, but I suppose about the relationship between the word um, and the action between the spoken text and the written text, and then also about how you might aesthetically integrate the captions rather than have them separate both in terms of place but also in terms of design having gone through that in detail I wonder if anybody wants to come in and kind of just highlight some things that emerge from that Christine yeah I'll definitely come in on that if that's okay because this is an area that is really interesting because I freely admit that one of the reasons we were very slow on certain was I was really resistant 
because in so many ways it totally undermines a lot of the work that's being done on the stage where, you know, if you're doing a comedy, someone is finally honing the moment where they want the line to land and they're colouring the way they sing a line and you're just putting up a piece of text and indeed potentially the line that they haven't yet sung. You know, not to be historical and, and be boring about going back into the past, but, you know, there a lot of directors were very resistant for the Deloitte Theatre Director, of course, existing Bohem production, we wanted to experiment by putting subtitles to that because it was always in Italian, but always very popular with first-time audiences as well. She said, absolutely, you can't do that because I've directed that piece in a way because I know that people don't understand the language. So there were, you know, literally there are people going, you know, my wife and pointing at their ring finger. She said, I would have to undo the whole acting style if we were to do that, so no. And then we also had a very big argument when she wanted... We wanted to sell title Grimes, again, her production. And at that period, Deborah Warner, for example, had it in her contract that no show of hers that was sung in English should ever be surtitled. So, you know, there was that real feeling that you do all this work in the rehearsal room with massive detail and then somebody just throws like a mist over it. And I think that still remains, that does still remain an issue. And there are one or two pieces which I will still say, we're doing it in English, it's a comedy They've worked incredibly hard on their text. We shouldn't surtitle. We didn't surtitle Figaro last time, did we, Stuart? No, we didn't. No, uh, that was, you see, that's, I always used to say, if we surtitle Figaro and we sing it in English, I'm going to resign. But actually, I probably would have retired before we do it again. But it is a really difficult area. And one or two singers find it incredibly undermining. Alistair Myers had a complete meltdown in the Larry once where the screens were in a position when he could see it. And he just became, he just said, I, my text is coming up. I might just as well not be here. And the other thing with opera, of course, which was Phyllis's argument with Grimes, was that putting the text up, it, it gives it a dominance. We've had this conversation, haven't we, Stuart, over the music. Benjamin Britten never wrote the choruses in Grimes for you to understand every word. But what he wanted was you should have this incredible noise of the village singing at you and out of which certain phrases emerged. Stuart and I have talked about this, I know, you can then take a much more creative approach to the titling, but that's also an interpretation. So you'd have to really sit down with your conductor and your director and go, in this ensemble, this is the phrase that we want the audience to understand. And then when you get selective, the audience know they're not seeing everything, and then they get a bit, well, I'm not here, they're not telling me everything. So I think that there's a whole area of work on this, which is we might need to be very upfront with the audience and say, this is part of the production and there's as much interpretation in how we use the words as there is in how we stage the piece. Because honestly, if you put if you put everybody, what everybody's saying in those Grimes choruses on the stage, it will be worse than useless. On the other hand, there are some directors who really want the text up there. When Martin Duncan did um, Mr. Night's Dream, he wanted all the text up there. And that's a lot of Shakespeare. From humble bees, and for night tapers, they'll make 
you know, I've got an English degree, and there were one or two words came up, and I was like, what does that mean? Whereas, you know, in the sound phrase, of course, you understand. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at this, I'm, you know, I'm trying to work that out with my English degree, specialising in, you know, Renaissance literature, and I'm not watching the stage. So, but you have to tell your audience you know, they're not going to have every word up there. They've got to know that. So being more open about that, and I always said, Stuart, those screens are there to help an audience understand. We could put anything we like on it. I'm sure I've said this before, the very first time we used subtitles, we did that because it was a David Panic production. It looked like a silent film and he did captions. I mean, he's a great person, was always anti all subtitles, but because of the style of the production, it said things like, Minnie thinks she's met the stranger before. Mm-hmm. Didn't say what she said. Yeah. And with a silent film, you know, those little scrolly things. That was a really creative use of titles, mm-hmm. I think. But we had loads of that, well, hardly any in Act 2 and nothing at all virtually in Act 3 because you kind of didn't need it. Now there's an expectation that every word is up there. And unless you're going to have a zillion slides, you do have words up there that have not yet been spoken on the stage. So the idea of integrating is something, I mean, I've been trying to do a, a dance piece with integrated sign language for years, and we may or may not be going to do that in the future. That's more complicated, Alice. I think it might actually be one layer too many in that particular project. But to actually really think about how you do it within opera, um, I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to have a conversation with James Brining tonight about his magic flute to see if there is a way that we can bring some level into this but it's a big thing because it means that you either have an extra person who needs to be given a a silent character or you have to have a company who are trained and opera by definition often has an awful lot of people so that's quite a challenge but that relationship between the performer the text production is very particular in opera because of the music I think one might need to experiment with something, either experiment with a revival as with James, who's obviously so used to working in that way, the playhouse, or we need to experiment with something smaller just so that we kind of know what we're doing before we let loose on Aida, you know. (laughs) such a rich answer and so many things that we could pick up from that it might be worth just mentioning that together with Dominic Gray and Stuart and myself and a colleague here at Newcastle University Bill Herbert we are about to advertise for a collaborative doctoral award PhD student with Northern Bridge a doctoral training partnership who will be helping Opera North and us think through some of those questions in terms of how you surtitle what you capture and what you can capture and what you can't capture and what some routes forward might be. I don't think we'll find an answer, but just it'll help us have some of those. Well, we do need to move. We do need to move forward because actually, however good you are, it's not a perfect thing to do to just put the text up there. So one of the things that we did with Red Earth, and obviously this was very much from an access point of view, and Alice, I'd be re- you know, well, I'd be really interested in hearing both Alice and Stuart on this, was was really thinking about working particularly from a kind of deaf and hard of hearing access point of view. We worked throughout with some stakeholders from Nottingham Deaf Society, 
and to have them involved in all of the workshops we did, all of the experimental days that we had. And one of the sort of conversations that we ended up having was really about whether you have to capture everything for everybody. So the expectation that everybody will have the same experience, which is clearly not the case if you're already kind of setting up access routes, is kind of thinking about different modes of access and sometimes things that you can capture in sign language or in the text that a hearing audience doesn't necessarily get if that makes sense so some of some of the most powerful moments for me of kind of access have really been a ramps on the moon production that took place at nottingham playhouse where there was a lovely moment where a group of deaf actors were talking amongst themselves in sign language and nobody who was hearing in the audience could understand what was going on and there was a kind of moment of secrecy amongst that group that wasn't captioned and wasn't made into dialogue and that was really oh a beautiful moment and then a moment in soon child which was the production where we did embed aesthetically kind of creative captions in the show where the voice of the unborn soon child who is refusing to be born until he hears the world's songs so it's a rather lovely musical moment and a clarinet was representing the voice of soon child and so the music played and the text came up, but there wasn't a spoken rendition of, of the meaning of that moment. And again, that was just a really lovely way in which music and textual image work together, but without the voice. So I, I suppose thinking about kind of total not meaning everything for everyone, I suppose. So anyway, I will shut up because I've talked far too much so far. So Alice or Stuart, please oh, well, jump in. <laughs> no, that's that's so interesting. Um I agree with you entirely that um, sometimes by making something accessible to one group of people, it might be slightly less accessible to others. But I like that idea that you're saying that where there's a moment that you might not understand what's going on. And the same thing happened to me with a panto recently where the main character, the Sleeping Beauty, was a deaf actor Mm -hmm. and she sings a song at one point. So she's signing and someone's singing, but they're facing away from the audience. And then she does the last verse by herself. And because you've seen the sign several times, she's just signing and she is actually sign singing. And you as an audience member, you do kind of understand it. So you're learning. Uh, you're also knowing that that's a special moment for people who are deaf in the audience who, who use BSL. So I think that's really wonderful. And we are at Opera North very much at this moment, really looking to how we can integrate accessibility more in these adventurous and exciting ways. Something that just, just has struck me as we're talking about all these things is that difference between some of the audience that come along to the operas, because some of them are, are so old and everyone knows them, in, some people know them inside out. Um, and like Christine said, if all the work's been done in the kind of visual representation that the text might not be necessary for those, makes me think that, you know, if you did go back to not having surtitles, but just had a couple of captioned performances, I don't know, it's really interesting to me, the fact that in opera, you've got very different audiences. You've got some who know the plot inside out and they never even look to the side. You've got newcomers though, who need to know what's going on. They perhaps haven't bought a programme, so they've not even read the story. But just one other point, actually, having worked in sort of community engagement as well, we always found it incredible that you'd bring along groups of people, sometimes groups of refugees, you know, they didn't have high levels of English and they totally got it. They totally got the story because they could see the emotion, they could hear the emotion in the music. And I think a lot of some opera plots are very, very simple you know it's not tricky clever kind of witty farce if it's a tragedy maybe so um you know there were those 
different things whereby perhaps this is enough to, to display it on the stage and then have captioned performances specifically for people mm -hmm. that, that do want to see the text. I don't know. But that it's is all, the argument of the director, isn't it? The director's argument is that their job is to tell the story and the music is there to tell you what the words don't. Otherwise, we'd be doing a play. Going back to that original argument about Bohem, we always had new audiences coming to that Bohem and nobody, because surtitles didn't exist, nobody really complained. But it's a funny thing. I mean, I always think it's bizarre that opera is the only form of theatre that most of the audience go into knowing what's going to happen at the end. I mean, I've, I've always hated the idea, actually, that we have a synopsis in the programme, really, because, you know, what, <laughs> I'd like them to be following this, you know, just kind of going with the story. It's just a sort of peculiar thing. So you've got the music giving you the, the emotion and underlining the narrative, and they probably read the programme anyway. So I don't know. One thing that we've only done for the first time in the last year with Trouble in Tahiti was actually give the performers a copy of the surtitle script because otherwise they're up there doing their stuff and they don't know which of their lines are actually on the screens and which aren't because obviously we don't put every word up except when we're captioning. And it was a particularly inquiring kind of minded singer who said, can we have a look kind of thing. And I just thought, well, this is really stupid because he said, of course, it does affect him knowing what people are reading and what they're not reading because he might want to inflect a line that isn't up there in a different way because they aren't reading it. Or you go with the fact that obviously, in a way, someone's decided that that line is the important one. That disconnect, which is back to your discussion, Joe, about the relationship between the performer and the text and all of that, it just seems sort of madness that, that we haven't actually been sharing that with the performers because it's so fundamental to what they do that they are speaking to the audience, but these words are also communicating with the audience. And those two, obviously the singers are the only animate side of that partnership, but you know what I mean? There should be an awareness when they're communicating of what also is being communicated up here. I mean, I'm not going to make every singer look at it but if anybody wants to I think they should be able to if you're okay with that Stuart yeah I mean there's, there's not to have a discussion I told them they couldn't <laughs> you know because then you'll have that's that the whole thing but just an awareness that that is what's happening yeah I mean it's probably sort of quite an internal discussion this one I think and maybe not for think, everything no and but actually the logic of what you're saying is in fact what would be most useful would be to have that script at the beginning of rehearsals because actually if it's going to be affect the performance and be integrated into the performance in a sense yes. that needs to happen during the studio rehearsals doesn't it it's kind of too late by the time we're getting getting onto the stage and at the moment our time scale is certainly not that far back so you know it's certainly something we could look at it would mean that we would need to get the script delivered earlier on I wouldn't have every singer being given any rights at all to argue with what was on the script, but it might be something that the assistant director is sitting there going, that is a much more important line in this production, and, and I think that does need to be subtitles. It, and that should, you know, that all becomes more integrated. It's becoming a more honed tool, but it has been a little bit of a blunt instrument in the past sometimes, hasn't it? And we are getting much better. So I think there are ways that we can... We can think about that. I'm quite interested in what you're saying, Alice. <laughs> Maybe we don't need them, which is why, and I have to say it was me saying we, we must give people the option to come to a show that isn't subtitled if they want to, which was always why 
I wanted some that were and some that weren't. But then I, then in the end, I just kind of caved in and let them get on with it. I know. But interestingly, uh, Christine, didn't ENO try that? They tried doing one performance of a run that was not titled, but they found that ticket sales were so low they gave up on it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Listen to your audience, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. Could I just add one more thing, which is just to think about the crucial difference between something that's being sung in a language other than English and something that's being sung in English. Because, of course, in theatre, generally speaking, the vast majority of the time, people are coming to something that is being spoken in English or sung in English if it's a musical, and therefore your subtitling or whatever takes that as its starting point. So it seems to me there is a crucial difference there because, obviously, if something's being sung in Italian or French or German or whatever the language might be, is that any translation, unless it's absolutely word for word literal, is a kind of paraphrase. And therefore, in a sense, you have more latitude because there's not that connection in the hearing of the auditor between the word that's being sung and the word that's appearing on the screen. It's different when it's in English. You don't have as much latitude because, of course, you are hearing what you are reading. I wouldn't mind betting that it's amazing how the presence of subtitles improve singer's diction in the minds of the audience, crucially. You know, we all know that even from, you know, watching subtitles on the television, when you're just listening to it and you're thinking, oh, I can't catch that. As soon as you've actually got the words there, suddenly it pings into focus. It's quite an interesting sort of psychological process going on there. Um, So I think that there is a difference there. And, you know, it's interesting to think about the two examples that Christine was giving of Philip Lloyd's production of the Britain Peter Grimes, which actually appeared in the same season as Martin Duncan's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Mm. where there were two very different views in terms of those two directors about what words should be on the screens. And I suspect, although I wasn't directly involved at that time, that part of Martin's argument with the dream was that the language is so sort of difficult anyway, because it's, you know, it's Shakespearean English, that rather than the audience feeling, I don't understand what they're singing about because I can't hear them properly, it was better to have all the text up there so they could look at the text and th- look at the screens and think, yeah, I don't understand what they're singing about because I don't understand the words, if you saw what I mean. I mean, it's a very crude way of looking yeah. at it. But, you know, I could see that sort of argument. Yeah, it's just to say that I think that obviously these two things are slightly different in in the approach that you need to take to them if something is a translation of what's being sung as opposed to the actual words that are being sung. And when you're in the original language, of course, and not in the vernacular, then you do get all kinds of issues around the production. And then there's that debate. If you have a very particular slant on a production and then, you know, they're talking about saws but waving machine guns, do you alter the titles? I mean, some directors want you to sort of rewrite the titles in order to support their production. And sometimes we just go, no, we're not doing that. And that's quite a grey area, isn't it, Stuart, I think? Yeah, it's a very grey area in the sense that I think that different directors have different degrees of interest in the titles you know I think that some directors in my experience anyway are very hands-on quite interventionist in terms of the text will do a lot of rewriting others much less so 
just as any two different productions of Tosca with different directors are very, very different, then the approach to titles is very much tied in with that particular director and that particular production. But there is a sort of moral issue there, isn't there? If the audience are reading something that they believe is what is actually being sung, but they're not, they're reading something that is an interpretation because the director wants you to change it. It's quite a tricky area, isn't it? There's something here, isn't there, about educating the audience or sharing you know if the approach does differ from show to show production to production is there something to be said I don't know on the website or when you book your tickets say this is how without putting people off as per ENO saying no sir titles but sort of thinking about these are the choices that we've made and this is kind of why this is happening so as a non-opera goer before being involved with opera and all through the kind of Newcastle connection. I've been to see two of your shows through that, the Bernstein double bill, so The Trouble in Tahiti, and then Alcina more recently. I think I've sort of said to some of you before, uh, with Alcina, there's obviously a kind of lot of repeated phrases in the in the text and the music that kind of got captioned once and then the screens went blank yeah that's an issue isn't it carried on and I you know because I'm probably because I'm a bit of a reader rather than you know that but even though I'm a theatre person that sort of text kind of stands out for me I suppose I just felt a bit lost kind of is this and then listening is this the same thing why why is it not being captioned partly probably because I see the subtitles of captions and think about access rather than about translation if that makes sense just because that's where my headspace is and then also in, in Trouble in Tahiti, I think there's a bit of kind of nonsense thinking that happens or kind of, and again, that the screens went blank at that point. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Why is that not being captured? And, and that in a way comes back maybe to the Peter Grimes example that you had of the kind of, the effect is what's the point yes, rather, than the, moment, rather than the meaning. But because just, there is no meaning to yeah, that stuff. So, it's yeah. just, it, but it, I kind of almost needed to know, Joe, you're not mishearing something or, or kind of what's going on here, if that if Of course, that we sense. did, didn't we, with the Orpheus, when the Indian musicians were just singing words without meaning, we just put a little sign, a little you know, note on the screen, which I don't know whether that entirely worked, but that was obviously the response, which would, in a way... You could have used that in Tahiti because that is nonsense that they're talking. Yeah, yeah. The, the Handelian question, because every aria is, you know, there's an A, B, A section. Mm-hmm. It's very arguable. Should one be very happy to repeat the text? Because then it helps people understand the structure and perhaps listen more to the fact that this is a repeat of the first section, but it's being repeated with a different dramatic intention. Because that's, you know, it always the da capo is always different from the first time you hear it. So... I think there are strong arguments either way. I'm rather inclined to think you should caption the Da Capo so that people know that you have come back to this same thought but invested with a different meaning. If you just look at the text, does it make it look like you're you're just going back to where you were? Or does it make you listen more to the singer who is giving a very different meaning to it the second time around? It's back to that crucial relationship between the performer and the text that is up there. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. Stuart, I can see you're bursting <laughs> with something to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I think that's an, the, the handles a very interesting example because, in fact, from when we revived Giulio Cesare, another handle opera in the autumn of 2019, uh, and in the Alcina that you're talking about, which we did last year, in fact, we were, in the vast majority of cases, 
bringing the text back for the decapo repeat. So, you know, just again to reiterate that most of those handle arias have an A section, they have a contrasting B section, and then a repeat of the A section where the same text and the same music comes back. But where the singer is, is as Christine says, may have a different dramatic intention and is perhaps decorating the musical line and so on. I think the crucial point here is that we did start captioning the de Capo repeat, but, and here's the crucial thing, that that A section, maybe three or four minutes or more of music, where the same two or three lines of text are getting repeated. So we would bring back the text at the beginning of the repeat, but then we would let it go when the same music and the same text just keeps coming round and round again. Because otherwise, you essentially are leaving exactly the same two or three lines of text up there for maybe four or five minutes on end while the singer repeats those musically. Decorates it, yeah. So that's sort of what was going on there. what you've already said is the whole key thing is that you tell your audience what is going to be done on this particular production because it varies on everything so if someone is a newcomer to a handle opera and don't know about you know the da capo arias we just need to explain that's how we're going to do it but it's a question of where do you put that i guess there's links to the website that you can send out in the tickets or in the pre-show email perhaps even on the screen i think it'd be useful for us to say this is a surtitle performance and it's a summary because it's all about letting people know. So they don't feel that anxiety when the screen goes back. Because we do, we get a lot of people saying, oh, I think the surtitles broke down, didn't they, in the middle of that act? And you're like, well, no, they didn't. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's hard to communicate that because not everybody will have read that. But at least if they're perplexed and maybe they look in their programmes, they'll find out. Yeah, interesting. Very complex. It's all very complex. It is. I just thought it was interesting to add in. I know that we're doing Mozart's Requiem. And uh, I was reading something very interesting recently about someone who had been to a Thomas Ades opera. And I think it's all it's all in English. The libretto's in English. So the surtitles were there. And then at the end, it goes into Latin. And it's a very deliberate choice by the librettist and the composer. And this particular reviewer was incensed that the surtitles just surtitled it in English. And yes. um, because he came from a sort of, I think his partner uh, was deaf or hard of hearing, and he felt it didn't give her the option of knowing that there was this particular choice to go into Latin at that stage. And he also thought it was patronising that the audience would know Latin. And, uh, you know, I just suddenly thought, gosh, it's just so contentious what you display and what you don't, because you're interpreting, you know, this, this artistic creation by people that aren't there because you're just doing mm -hmm. the production of it. And then thinking ahead to when we're doing Mozart's Requiem, where the chorus will be singing Mozart in Latin, they'll have dancers. 
I don't know what we've planned to do, whether we have... No, what are we going to do? Well, in the concert hall, you never would, would you? You might have a translation in a programme if people are listening to Mozart's Requiem, but it, you, you wouldn't have anything there visually. And we've Are we going to have Latin on the screens? Or are we going to have English on the screens? Or are we going to have nothing on the screens? This is it. Sorry, I've opened up a whole new can of worms. Stuart. <laughs> and the answer Quiet is now. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a senior management decision, <laughs> which which I will then I will then seek put into practice. Effect, yeah. uh, you know, as um, so, as, so, as best as I, mean, I suppose, Stuart. It'd be really good to hear a bit when we were sort of thinking about the themes for this podcast. We talked quite a lot about those sort of decisions about what you translate and how you capture the detail I think you talked about was it Parsifal were you talking about the complexity of a, the layering of a, a musical text a performance text and kind of what gets translated and what doesn't and how you go through that process and I think it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an example of what I was talking about earlier of the difference between something that was written originally in a different language and therefore we are presenting a translation of that on, on the screens. And, and, you know, you have to make choices then because it's, it's unless it's completely literal, completely word for word, it is a kind of paraphrase, which is going to be some degree distant from the original. Probably the, the parallel in the theatre is what, very often happens these days and has done for a very long time, I suppose now, for the past few decades, when you're presenting a play that was originally written in a different language. So, you know, if someone does a new production of, uh, I don't know, a play by Chekhov or by Ibsen, very often the process is that a literal translation of the text will be commissioned Mm -hmm. and that text will then be handed over to a playwright who will come up with what is a version of that original text. And so therefore, there are degrees of how free that version is. So when somebody comes along to say, I don't know, Chekhov's The Seagull or Ibsen's A Doll's House, to what degree they're really getting Ibsen or Chekhov and to what degree they're getting, I don't know, Tom Stoppard or whoever did the version. You think exactly the same sort of territory, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there'll be a combination of sort of more philosophical considerations and practical considerations um, in terms of what's going to work on the stage within this particular production, et cetera, et cetera, that all come into play. And my overall feeling is that the primary purpose of the titles is to keep the audience in touch with the storytelling you know with the best will in the world you can't capture every single nuance and something that we sort of touched on earlier the words are by no means the only means of communication I mean that's true in any stage production I think it is particularly true in opera where so much of the communication primarily is coming from the music which is inherently ambiguous so what you are doing is is always making a choice and and always trying to be I think in our case as clear and concise as possible to keep people in touch with the storytelling and to be able to absorb the information on the title slides as as easily as possible in order to keep the focus on all of those other ways that this particular event is communicating with you and probably above all through the music. That feels like a really good place actually to go back to the music and to think about that as the vehicle of sense making, I suppose. That is the primary vehicle of our art form, 
well, it's a joint. I will always maintain that, you know, the, but it's the visceral, emotionally charged, most direct form of communication. And because it is informed by the words, arguably, in certain cases, it tells you the story regardless of what the words are. Mm-hmm. What I'd be interested in is obviously, you know, the older operas, all the old ones that we do before any kind of technology obviously there weren't subtitles so whether they prioritized the voices to be heard clearer I don't know but I'd be very interested in composers who are writing today who know that there are subtitles how do they feel about them and how does that affect how they write the singer's lines the orchestral textures etc I don't know yes because in a way they should it should be part of their score shouldn't it Mm -hmm. at this point I want this line to be I want these words to be heard by the audience, but I don't actually want it to be heard in my orchestral texture. I want to know that I can bring that into my score, that, that I'm in a way I'm illustrating that line perhaps here and the, because I know the words are going to be there. I mean, I don't know if anybody's thinking about that yet. They probably are, mm. and we should probably do some research on that because then you've solved the problem in the creation of the piece, mm-hmm. haven't you, in a way, as to I what you do and don't yeah. put up there. We're trying to really make these work in as many different ways as there are pieces because the thing exists, as you say, Alice, before the knowledge of this technology. But if the composer embraced that and, okay, I want this work, I want this line sang, I want this line read, and no one's actually going to articulate it, but it's going to be up there and it's as much part of my score, my piece, as as the things that people are actually singing. I guess somebody is probably doing that work. We we need this person to do some research on that to find out what's happening out there. Student, our prospective student might be very interested in that question. That strikes me as a really, really interesting question. And I suppose then one of the things that seems to have emerged repeatedly through this conversation is really the importance of, of having time and having kind of creative time to think about if we could get the script to performers earlier in the process, the possibility of a kind of more integrated approach or at least a more integrated understanding towards how that text sits within the performance even under your kind of current mode Mm -hmm. but if we're thinking about somebody actually writing with the knowledge of captions in mind then it would also be interesting to think about where they would put those captions would they just know that they're going to be at the side of the stage or would you want to do something else with them I suppose and that was kind of where the Red Earth work ended up it was in theory at least part of the design and in some ways the directors were almost thinking about the captions as potentially a kind of another character in the performance that could comment on you could think about this as another voice that could asterisk something that was happening or so on I'll be perfectly honest and say one of the challenges of that because we were using new technology was that nobody quite trusted that it would work. It's always <laughs> it did. But by that point, we'd kind of somebody, you know, I think in a rehearsal four weeks before, somebody said, just in case, shall we caption at the side as well? And then, of course, it became easier to not have to caption everything or to sort of think differently about what was happening in the action. And then COVID hit the next stage that we would have moved on. And at that point, I think the designer absolutely believed that it would work and was prepared to kind of embed it within the stage action more fully. We did do that with House of the Dead, didn't we? We had the three great monologues in that piece were captioned. One, we had a beam where um, Skorotov did his narration and and the titles went along the screen. I can't quite remember where the first one was. 
it was where the, the tenor was sitting, wasn't it? Was it like on the end of a bed or, or I can't remember what it was, or a table or something? But it was interesting. I mean, I think in, in terms of sense, we made the wrong description because there, there are these three great narratives, solo narratives in this piece, Joe, which of course were very clear, in fact, and they were the things that probably didn't need for sense to be titled. But in terms of your perception of the structure of the piece, it outlined how there are these three massive solo narratives in the piece. So that did contribute to your understanding of how the structure of that piece works, which I think was good. But in, in terms of the audience understanding actually what was being said, it was probably the other bits, the more conversational bits around the edges that they might have wanted to hear. But it was, it was a really interesting example of how just seeing them made you feel differently about the importance of those three characters in that piece. So that was quite interesting. And the technology did work for that. It had to be quite finely focused because certainly one of them is quite a narrow little strip. It was like a bedspread or something, wasn't it? There was something that, that Jeff's narrative went along. So those things are a bit scary when you're a, when you're a touring company and you're not quite sure if, you, if they just don't get projected on the right bit. Yeah. It's quite, yeah, quite so annoying. This was, I mean, this was a touring with anyway, the... The whizzy bit, the computer science bit, was a very easy form of projection mapping, which took about five minutes to set up in each right. new theatre. So well, I think those things have obviously got much better too. I mean, this, yeah, the, yeah. the House of the Dead was 2011, wasn't it? Right. So that's okay. that was you know a long time ago, and it was a little bit, let's cross our fingers and hope that we've got this set up in the right place when we get to Newcastle. You know, And just adding on there to your point, Joe, about integrating things from the start and how it can be brought into the creative process. Also thinking of people who are visually impaired who can't read the subtitle screens. Oh. If you think about audio description from the very start and have the kind of creative team contribute, there are some really exciting developments in that world where people are actually creating a new character that isn't actually in the play or, or the piece, mm-hmm. but then narrates the audio description from that point of view. So they're an actor and you know they bring it to life. And from people who are blind or partially sighted who've tried this, technology you know, or this method of doing it you know it just is so much more integrated it keeps them in the world of the piece they're not jolted out by a kind of deadpan voice in their ear so you know we're looking at progressions in that area as well which is great and always starting at the very start talking to directors and creative teams about how we can integrate that at the beginning which again would be something that, that you want composers to think about wouldn't it because it is a, it's a voice yeah. i mean it's absolutely part of the score then yeah papagano's yeah. friend <laughs> yes or whatever <laughs> yes yeah it's a whole other layer as amy leach describes it from uh, Leeds playhouse she said you know it's like a whole nother layer in her paint palette when she realized accessibility you know gives you all these other creative possibilities yes. for your piece, which is exciting yeah but it's interesting just going back to the audio description so many of our audiences as, as with the surtitle screens so many people aren't self-declared users of accessible equipment or services my own dad wouldn't regard himself as visually impaired and yet his sight is going such that wherever they sit he can barely read the surtitle screens mm-hmm. he tried audio description and he loved it he understood what was going on for the first time for ages i think um, the last stats i saw was something like 12 million 13 million people in the country are slightly hard of hearing of one way or another so certainly in theatre the surtitles there could be useful i suspect in opera too i mean i am a fairly experienced theatre goer I'm a not experienced opera goer and for me the captions were really helpful just in terms of locating what was going on understanding what was going on so thinking about if you're wanting to kind of get new audiences younger audiences in you know whether that just helps make intelligible 
an experience that otherwise might be slightly intimidating and off-putting. And so I suppose it's thinking about the role that captioning might have more widely in your mission. But to get people to know about these accessible add-ons and to pick up a headset and, you know, there's still these kind of clunky things and steps we have to do to sort of, I don't know, to try and make things accessible. But we're still, we're just pushing away at it and then trying to make people more aware and telling people just to try it. And yeah, all the technology is there to help us do it now. It's just a question Mm -hmm. of, I suppose, encouraging audiences to try it. Mm -hmm. And getting creative teams engaged, definitely, because then it really is coming from the right place as opposed to us trying to be as clever and thoughtful and nuanced as possible from the outside. I can't remember who it was earlier, but I think it might have been you, Christine, talking about kind of the access or the surtitles as a mist that falls uh, yes, you know, exactly. the, towards the end of the production and really just thinking about it, not as that at all, but as part of the bone structure of the yeah. production itself. You know, from the grass. Sorry, I'm going to mix my metaphors horribly. <laughs> <laughs> but that real sense of integration. And I think if, if creative teams recognise that it, adds something rather than takes away or detracts and distracts then I think that then I think we're in a really good place Mm. but one that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and I realize that creative organizations but you know those are the things that we're all short of which is a bit of a negative note to end on (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a pragmatic note rather than I think there's the will and I think it is so important it's so important to try and fine-tune these things and look at them creatively and I think if we were to work with a composer who embraced that we would then learn things that we could then retrospectively apply to the existing operatic canon I think I think there could well be that so I do think that's a really good area to be thinking about very good I feel a strategic arts council application coming up yep sounds good to me yeah You've been listening to the first episode of Newcastle University and Opera North's podcast, Staging the Voice, Voicing the Stage, with Alice Gilmore, Christine Chibnall, Stuart Leakes, and me, Professor Joe Robinson. Mm-hmm.